Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. So today, I want to talk about the neuroscience behind the Salem Witch Trials. I'm hoping that this will be part history, part conspiracy theory, a little bit spooky, and a little bit neuroscience. This week's episode is inspired by my all-time favorite true crime podcast, Morbid, which did an episode on the Salem Witch Trials. I think it's episode 23. And after listening to that, I wanted to dive a little deeper into the science behind one of the greatest witch hunts in American history. So shall we get into it? So, it's January 1692, Salem, Massachusetts. Nine-year-old Elizabeth Betty Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams start to act strangely. They would go missing for long periods of time, and when they came home, they would complain of fever, bark like dogs, and scream and cry out in pain, their bodies convulsing into unnatural positions. Some sources claim that they had been dabbling in some fortune-telling with their family slave, and it was only once they had been caught and told off for messing with things that they shouldn't know about that they began to have strange fits. But a witness claimed that it looked like they were being bitten and pinched by invisible agents. Their arms, necks, and backs turned this way and that way and returned back again, so it was impossible for them to do it themselves. One account claimed that sometimes they were taken dumb, Their mouths flopped, their throats choked, their limbs racked and tormented. And honestly, it kind of sounds like a seizure to me. So their father and uncle, Samuel Paris, tried home remedies and prayer. Now, this is a deeply religious community. In 1692, Salem was a Puritan town where prayer and worship and God were at the heart of daily life. Once prayer had failed and the doctor was unable to find any physical evidence of any disease or condition, they were left with the only possible explanation, witchcraft. Soon, other children in the village, young women, also started coming down with similar symptoms, confirming confirming many people's suspicions that this was a malicious witch targeting children and bent on destroying their community. A neighbor of the Parises, Mary Sibley, recommended that the Parises' family slave, Tichiba, bake a witch's cake, a rye cake made with the victim's urine, and feed the cake to a dog, a ritual thought to reveal the names of the witches. Make note that the cake is rye, specifically, and keep listening to find out why that is potentially super, super important. Unfortunately, nothing helped the poor afflicted girls, and Tichiba was actually the first to be accused of witchcraft by the girls, closely followed by two women, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Sarah Good was a very, very poor woman who was thought to have rejected Puritan ideals, a huge transgression in that day and age. Sarah Osborne was a woman who rarely attended church, and Tichiba was an enslaved woman from the West Indies who was reportedly um, telling Abigail Williams and Betty Paris stories from Malaeus Maleficarum, the Handbook of Witches. Stories of sex and enchantment and adventure, all big no-nos for, a re- for such a religious community. And so far, all I can see are human motivations. The targets accused of witchcraft are women who are considered outsiders of the community, people who have rejected the strict religious ideals that govern the lives of everyone else. They were jailed and interrogated. The following month, four more were accused of witchcraft, one of whom was a child. 
like a literal child. She was four. One of the accused and the mother of said child, Martha Corey, had been skeptical of the girl's accusations, drawing attention to herself. These women were examined and interrogated, and the child's testimony was used as evidence against its mother. Not 100% sure what kind of testimony you're going to get from a four-year-old, but that's not my business. The interrogators also looked for marks on their bodies, birthmarks or moles or third nipples, thought to be places where the devil drank their blood for their witchy-witchy means. The troubling thing was that the latest women accused were upstanding citizens, some fully covenated members of the church in Salem Village and Salem Town. The paranoia was growing. If these religiously pious women could be witches, anyone could. And at this point, we start to see collateral damage. When Elizabeth Proctor was accused by her maid, arrested and brought before local magistrates, her husband protested and was arrested himself later the same day. Within a week, many other women and their husbands and their loved ones, including some that had previously been the accusers, were arrested and examined. The wave of paranoia and finger-pointing was overwhelming in the community. Neighbor turned on neighbor, and anything and everything could be considered evidence of witchcraft. The power of suggestion is, well, powerful. Trials were set up to determine who was the witch or witches who had been afflicting the community. Many accused were released after their initial arrest because it was impossible to prove that they had been the culprit based on spectral evidence and witness testimony. Honestly, I I don't know how you prove someone is a witch, so I don't know how you disprove that someone is a witch. But hey, that's 1690s Puritans, everyone. Unfortunately, Sarah Osborne, who was one of the first to be accused, died in prison on May 10, 1692, after almost four months there. More than 200 people were accused of witchcraft by the end of this ordeal. And eventually, on June 2nd, 1692, a court was convened, with Chief Magistrate William Stoughton presiding. Bridget Bishop was the first to go to trial, with testimony against her stating that she did not live a Puritan lifestyle for she wore black clothing and odd costumes. Like myself. (laughs) Bridget was convicted and hanged. Throughout the rest of June and July, indictments went out against other members of the community, including Sarah Good, Elizabeth Proctor, who's granted a stay of execution because of her pregnancy, John Proctor, Martha Corey, and her husband, Giles Corey. In a truly tragic turn of events, Giles Corey actually refused to plead guilty and was tortured to death. The witch hunt started to wind down around October. Once Governor of Massachusetts, Sir William Phipp, I think that's how you say it, it's spelled P-H-I-P, so my brain says Phipp, could be Hip? That doesn't seem right. I'm going to go with Fip. Uh, That guy dissolved the court and ensured that all other pending charges of witchcraft were absolved and the people were, were released. But the damage was done. More than 200 people had their lives uprooted and were accused of being witches, and 25 had died. It is clear that paranoia, religious fervor, and political agendas were at the core of these events. It's important to note that this was by no means a stable time in American history. Starvation and disease were everyday concerns. In addition, Salem had some conflicts with the local Native Americans. Understandable given the colonists' propensity for taking land and resources that were not theirs. 
This anti-Native American sentiment is also seen in the town persecution of Tichiba, who was married to an indigenous man called John Indian. But beyond the general instability, there were family feuds and personal agendas that contributed. At the time, there was a massive fight between two families, the Putnams and the Porters. John Putnam was the patriarch of the largest family in Salem, a family of farmers who had followed the simple life of traditional Puritans. The Porters, in contrast, were a family of agricultural entrepreneurs with diverse business interests and growing wealth. The rivalry began with a dam flooding some farms, but really escalated with the arrival of Reverend Samuel Parris, who quickly aligned himself with the Putnam family. It was, in fact, the very same reverend who came home to discover his daughter Elizabeth Parris and her cousin Abigail Williams afflicted with convulsions and strange fits. Thus, it could not be called any great coincidence that once the accusations began flying, it was the Putnams who were doing much of the accusing and supporters of the Porters that were on the other unfortunate end. But is that all that there is to it? Could a group of young girls doing some fortune-telling, who didn't want to get in trouble, decide that the only way out of it was by contorting themselves and foaming at the mouth and accusing their neighbors of witchcraft? Could this group of young women be weaponized by a power-hungry family in a turbulent climate of political instability and insecurity? Could this entire situation be compounded by a deeply religious community who ostracized anyone that they considered, considered too different? It's entirely possible. I'm sure we've all heard crazier stories. But I want to introduce you to my favorite theory. Ergot. Ergot is a fungal disease of rye and other cereals in which long, black, elongated, fruiting bodies grow in the ears of of cereal. If you remember, Tichiba was told to make a witch's cake with rye, so we know that this was something that the members of the sailing community were definitely eating. Ergot forms in rye after a severe winter and a damp spring, things that were confirmed to have happened in 1691. And the presence of those darker shoots, which we now know as ergot, but at the time they definitely didn't, was probably just attributed at the time to overexposure of the sun, so it was most likely still eaten despite being poisonous. So once ergot-contaminated rye was eaten, the sufferer contracted ergotism, also called St. Anthony's fire, which causes severe convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions, sensations of crawling under the skin, yikes, and in extreme cases, gangrene of the extremities due to extreme constriction of your blood vessels. Now, that sounds an awful lot like some of the convulsion-like symptoms of the afflicted girls, right? So what about the neurological symptoms? Let's get to the neuroscience. Ergotism is also defined by severe hallucinations. Lysergic acid, the substance from which the drug LSD is synthesized, is a major component of ergot-contaminated rye and acts very similarly. Lysergic acid, or LSA, acts as an agonist, an activator, on serotonin receptors, specifically on these 5-HT2AR receptors, increasing the amount of serotonin released in the brain. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter a chemical messenger that allows neurons to communicate with each other. It's involved in dozens of different functions from your emotions to your motor skills. It's often considered a natural mood stabilizer 
and deficiencies in serotonin result in conditions such as anxiety, depression, etc., etc. Researchers with the NIH's National Institute of Mental Health discovered that when LSA binds to the serotonin receptor, the receptor kind of changes formation and closes a lid on the top, preventing the drug from detaching which is just so cool to think about and also explains why LSA and LSD have such long-lasting effects. Because of the increased serotonin activity in the brain, we start to see brain regions which would normally not communicate with each other start to communicate with each other. In particular, the visual cortex increases its communication with other parts of the brain, which may help to explain the vivid and complex hallucinations experienced under LSA and their emotional significance. Doesn't this sound an awful lot like the symptoms experienced by the young residents of Salem? Ingesting ergot has also been linked to the development of seizures, further evidence that it's serotonergic overstimulation of the central nervous system, otherwise known as serotonin syndrome that's at fault here. You might ask, why only children and young adults are affected? The reason could be that their immune systems are not fully developed, and it has been shown that ergot primarily affects younger children, but, an important caveat, only um, of the afflicted, only three girls were younger than 15 years old. So it doesn't quite match. So here's my theory. Maybe the first victims, Elizabeth Paris and Abigail Williams, were in fact poisoned by ergot, and the older afflicted women followed suit mimicking their mannerisms to further their own ambitions and get back at those who had wronged them. It's no secret that many of the accusers had grudges against their accused. Some also speculate that the witch trials ended in May 1963, quite simply because Salem ran out of ergot-contaminated grain. It's a very cool theory, but a theory nevertheless, and unfortunately we will never know. Excuse me. We will never know the true story in its entirety. This witch hunt is a tragic part of Massachusetts and American history, and today, memorials stand to honor those who were persecuted and executed for witchcraft. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of the Salem witch trials. I know that this episode was light on neuroscience. I think that next week I will dive into something more technically complex, so look out for that. But please let me know if you like this kind of format. I'm always eager to hear your feedback. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.